I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, with writer Ijeoma Oluo, poet Denez Smith, and music from Amethyst Kia. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you, Elena Passarello, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Elena, how are you doing this week? Uh, I am at home. And yeah. I'm safe. So in, in those respects, I'm doing okay. But uh, in other respects, it's been a hell of a week. Uh, and I'm just glad to see you and glad yeah. to be here uh, to think and talk a little bit with some of my friends. Yeah, you know, we have since the pandemic hit, we, we started calling these a live wire house party. And the whole yeah. kind of conceit has been like, have a couple of cocktails, sing a song, let's all yeah. party, you know, during the quarantine. And it that just did not feel like the right tone for the show. And honestly, I don't think anybody associated with the production of the program felt like that was what we wanted to do this week. Right. Um, yeah, this has just been obviously such uh, an intense time for everybody, but a reckoning that is very much overdue in this country. The thing I've been thinking about as, you know, a white straight male, so basically the absolute top of the privilege pyramid, uh, to compare it to the pandemic a little bit, you know, I think we've all just been thinking with, with the pandemic, we just want to get this over with. We just want to be right. not trapped in our homes, not wearing masks and silently judging people at the grocery store. Like we just want to <laughs> get through it. And I mm-hmm. think there's some part of my brain with what's gone on this week with the protests and all of the uprising that's gone on has been, I can't wait till people are safe again, till mm-hmm. we can be through this, till normal life can return again. But it's not like the pandemic. It's not like we just want to go back to normal life. You know what I mean? Mm-mm. It's like normal life was the problem. We need to mm-hmm. come back to a new version of life where, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of racist ideology this country was built on is actually really eradicated from how mm-hmm. the systems in this country work. But it's mm-hmm. I had to really kind of interrogate myself and think, why do I want this to be over? Well, because it really challenges my notion of who I am. If I am an ally 
mm-hmm. if I should host a radio show or just mm-hmm. step away. And I think the best thing we can do this week is to really try to create some space for people on this show to talk, and particularly people that come from different backgrounds than you and I, Elena. And I was thinking a really good way to do that would be to replay this conversation we had with Ijeoma Aluo talking about her book, So You Want to Talk About Race. I have seen this book mentioned online hundreds if not thousands of times in the last week because it's it's an amazing piece of writing that really gets yeah. into the way that racism has affected this country and affected people in this country um, and yet mm-hmm. it's also very accessible uh, we, we, yeah. we interviewed Ijeoma back in 2018 I think uh, the book is sold out in most places right now like it's hard to even find it because wow. people it's just becoming kind of the go to uh, book on this topic and one of the things Ijeoma has been saying on Twitter uh, is that she is standing on the shoulder of a lot of other black writers. And so she's right. been recommending other books and books that I'd never heard of and people I wasn't familiar with. And so now I'm going down that chain and trying to really uh, explore that stuff too. So yeah. uh, this just seems like the week that we should play this conversation with Ijeoma, which was which was so illuminating and also fun, by the way, mm-hmm. when we talked to her back in 2018. So let's take a listen to that. This is Ijeoma Aluo recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Ichioma, welcome back to Livewire. Happy to be here. This is a lovely welcome back to Portland. Well, it's a, it's a really, really good book. I really enjoyed reading it. It helped me kind of frame a lot of ideas that I'd had, conversations that I'd had previously where I didn't really have a, a, a sort of succinct and clear way to think about them or to describe them to other people. Who did you write this book for? Who did you have in mind when you were writing it? That's a tricky question because who I wrote it for and who I wrote it to are two different answers. Okay. Who did you write it to? I wrote it mostly to white people. I wrote it mostly for people of color. And there's a difference. I wrote it in the hopes that it would lift some burden off of people of color or that they would be able to see their experiences in it or have a few less awful, harmful conversations or be able to navigate through some harder situations. And what that means is that there's a lot of work that white people have to do. And I wanted to make sure that I included a lot of that to make that easier for them to do that. But it's almost everything I write is for people of color. You know, I'm always thinking, is this going to make life easier for us? Did you uh, feel, in giving the book a title, like, So You Want to Talk About Race, did you feel any kind of pressure to really write the definitive book on the subject for uh, white people in particular to kind of get a sense for how to talk about this topic and how to think outside of their, their comfort zone, as it were? No. <laughs> really? No. I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, we've been writing about these topics. There's nothing I can write about that hasn't been written about in the past. I wrote this knowing it would be a primer. I was very specific with my intention with this book, which was it wasn't going to be your deep dive into racial theory. Those books have been done by better writers than me, better academics than me. This was the book that I wanted where you're thinking, okay, what does this mean when I'm talking to my relatives and my uncle says something really racist at the dinner table? What does this mean, you know, for me in the office? What does this mean when I'm talking to my children's teachers? That's where I saw a gap as far as a book And I wanted it to be something that people would carry around with them and use in their day-to-day lives to really combat the way in which the products of racial oppression affect us every day in ways that I think 
you know, good half the population doesn't see. But you also write about they're saying something rude or mean to somebody based on the color of their skin, and then there's saying something rude or mean to somebody based on the color of their skin with the full force of the government and all of our systems behind it. It's sort of like racism and then like aggravated racism. And you draw the <laughs> distinction between the two. Do you feel like that's putting a message out to largely white America that we haven't really had a chance to think about yet? Yeah, well, I mean, it falls into this whole debate about whether or not reverse racism is a thing. And it's spoiler alert, it's not a thing. Explain that, though, because <laughs> this crowd is clapping along. But, like, it's very common... Anybody who's been home for the holidays, uh, or I can at least say any white person who's been home for the holidays, considers themselves even moderately woke or whatever the word is, has had that moment where someone says, well, what about reverse racism? What do you say to that? Well, I would say, first of all, if you're only bringing it up as a rebuttal to talking about the true racial oppression that impacts the lives of people of color, chances are it's not affecting you that much. And that's kind of the difference. If it's something you can pull out of your pocket to win a debate and then put it back in your pocket for the rest of your life, chances are it's right. not that big of a deal. What people of color focus on when we talk about race, we're not talking about hurt feelings. You know, we're not talking about awkward moments. We're talking about what impedes our ability to live. And that's what racism does. That's what racial oppression does. It's because it's backed up by a system. It's because it has a system that reinforces it. When I'm walking down the street, people can think whatever they want about me. But when they act on that, and I know that they have the entire justice system, the entire political system, economic system, and education system to back that up and reinforce how I live my life, that's when we have a problem. And I think what people don't realize is it's not just, oh, it stung when someone shouted a racial slur at me. It's, you know, someone shouted a racial slur at me and then they went and they voted. Right. You know, and, and now I can't get a job and I can't get protection from police and I can't, you know, educate my children. That's where the impact lies. We've all been called names. We've all been insulted. And when you can brush that off, that's just... A matter of words. But when you can't, because it has a measurable impact on your ability to live and provide for your family and your ability to be safe in this world, that's the problem of racial oppression in this country. And to act like it's all the same, you know, if I was to walk up to you and call you a white slur, you would look shocked, it would ruin your day, and then you would come back to work and your life would be the same. But if you were to say that, just the power structure that you have right now and what it would reinforce in society. If I were to insult you yeah. in, a, in, a, in a similar fashion. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to insult you back without risking a lot for me. And you have a lot of power in society, right? And, and those are the sorts of things that we don't realize. You know, every day that I walk through, I remember being at work before I was writing and someone would say something racially insensitive and you would think, is this worth not getting that promotion over? Is this worth not having any allies in this office? Is it worth not having any friends? Is it worth knowing that I could be dragged into HR for creating a hostile work environment for standing up for myself? And that's the difference. You're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are sharing an interview that we did with Ijeoma Aluo back in June of 2018. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but please don't go anywhere because we'll be back with much more with Ijeoma. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. 
Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, broadcasting, of course, from quarantine. Down at her house in Corvallis, Oregon, is Elena Passarello. We're having a maybe a little bit more serious house mm-hmm. get-together this week, Elena. Yeah. We've been calling these the house party, but this week it feels like what we should really do is, I don't know, have a house Chautauqua. Have a have a have a get together where we we sort of a house kiki. We learn from other people, and um, and we're learning from Ijeoma Alua right now. She's the author of So You Want to Talk About Race. Uh, let's go back to that conversation which we recorded in 2018 uh, at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen. I didn't know this, but you your first writing you were writing a, basically a cooking blog. Yeah, it's a really good way to get free food. <laughs> So you started writing about food, and, and then over time, the, the topics that you would talk about on the blog really changed, and it feels like ultimately led to this book of yours. How did that evolution happen? I mean, part of it was, you know, I was working in marketing. I was working in a predominantly white industry, white male industry, and I was traveling, and I was writing about food, because I really like food, and I like free food, and... <laughs> This was, you know, before people were taking selfies all the time of their food on Facebook, right? So, you know, before that, you had a blog, and you used a real camera, and it was just the same, but more annoying. And <laughs> I was doing this, but, you know, the truth was, is I think I had always thought that there would be some point in my life, there would be some level of maybe career success where I wouldn't have to deal with as much of the crap that people of color face. And, of course, that's not true. Like, I still wake up a black woman every single day. I mean, we watched Obama go through hell for eight years, being disrespected every single day in our nation's highest office, and there is no level that you can reach. And so, you know, I've never been really good at not saying things. <laughs> it's just not, um, I was always known as like, oh, should we invite Ijoma to this meeting? She says a lot of smart things, but also she says everything. <laughs> and it got to the point where there were things I just couldn't be quiet about anymore. And so I started writing about it really out of desperation. Like, I really needed to feel like my community was a community. I needed to feel like the people who said they loved me actually heard me. Because there's a collective gaslighting around race, where you're wandering around and every day you're being reminded that you're less than and that you're unsafe. And then everyone around you is acting like none of it's happening. 
And they're just like, what do you mean? It's a great day to be alive in America. And you're like, a cop pulled up next to me and I hyperventilated for three minutes straight. This was my morning, you know? And so that's really why I started writing. And then once you have this area of your life where you're always telling the truth, then it becomes really hard to not get fired from your job. Like, that's <laughs> tough. Um, your mom is white, and you write in the book that you had one of your first pretty real and serious conversations about race in your, you were like in your almost mid-30s. How did that go? <laughs> it was uncomfortable. You know, people come up to me and they, I get a lot of mixed race people of color coming up to me asking how do they talk to their parents with the same fear that I had in my eyes when my mom called me to tell me she had this epiphany about race and wanted to talk to me about it. And I was like, no! <laughs> I... <laughs> I love my mom. I was very fortunate. Um, many mixed-race black people in particular are raised to um, ignore their race and the realities of their race. And their parents oftentimes tell them they don't see color or, you know, they, they try to act like what they're facing doesn't exist. And my mom did not do that, luckily. My mom was very proud of our blackness. Really embarrassingly so, actually. <laughs> like... We're, we're half Nigerian, and every excuse she had to dress us up in full Nigerian garb and send us off to school, she would. And there's like this picture of us at, during the Olympics, um, I think it was 1988. Yeah. In full Nigerian, I had a gele, rap, and my brother's wearing, and he's holding like a staff, and we're standing in front of the Olympic flag, and my friends were like, was there a school event? And we're like, no. <laughs> so my mom loved our blackness, but we never had like those substantive conversations about race as we got older as adults and what our reality was like. You know, a lot of parents, it's really hard to imagine that your kid has a whole separate reality from you. You know, they come from you and then you're like, wait, what? You have this whole life I'm not a part of? And that's hard enough anyways. But when you add racial differences then it becomes harder. Like my mom really thought she had earned some real blackness. <laughs> but actually sitting down and realizing I am a white woman. I am not black like my children. And this is where my role is in fighting racial oppression. It gave her focus at when she got past that fear. So now she's, you know, the white lady in her union meeting who's constantly saying, you know, what are your racial initiatives? Because she knows as this little old white lady, she can say that and harp on it over and over again and not be dismissed or insulted the way that black people are. And when you find where you have the power in that situation and then you decide to use it differently, that's where you can make a real difference. I spend a lot of time with allies who don't want to see that we're different. Hmm. And I say it's a lot like when I've lost something in my house and I ask my 10-year-old to help me find it. Yeah, good He luck. just follows me <laughs> everywhere <laughs> and just looks in the exact same place I just looked. And then I keep bumping into him and I'm like, I just did this. He's like, I'm helping. I'm like, you're not helping. Well, the book is amazing. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's So You Want to Talk About Race. It's written by Ijeoma Oluo, our guest. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you. 
That was Ijeoma Oluo talking about her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, from back in 2018. Ijeoma's actually at work on a new book, which is coming out later this year. She is scheduled to be back on the show, so please do uh, tune in for that. This is Livewire Radio. Livewire gets support from Alaska Airlines, working nonstop to support their guests, employees, and communities. And they're offering no change or cancel fees for flights booked through June and taken by February 2021. Reward benefits are also extended, so companion fares and elite status will be there when it's time to fly again. Learn how else they're supporting flyers at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, joined, as always, by my friend Elena Passarello. It really is nice to see your face, Elena, I have to say. I mean, each week, it's uh, a joy to check in with you, but man, <laughs> this is a real, like, you know, like, hug your people week, right? Yeah, and I haven't even washed my hair today, so the fact that it's a good thing to see my face uh, it's is really working. saying something. I think your, you know, nature is healing. Whatever's yeah. going on, your biome is, 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 is it's, it's, all, it's all on point. This week, we're taking a little bit maybe more serious tone than some other weeks, but it's because, of course, uh, we are going through a lot as a nation, and that just feels like the right thing to do for us. Um, We also wanted to play interviews with people who we think really speak to this moment of time that we're in. Uh, We interviewed the poet Denez Smith back in February, but actually we hadn't had a chance to air this. This is one of the last shows we were able to do with a crowd before the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Yeah. And it was an electric moment with Denez reading from their book. I mean, it was... Really incredible. Elena, you also pointed out this week that uh, Denez has been raising money online for their hometown of Minneapolis. Yeah, I followed Denez on Twitter. And at the beginning part of the week, I think around Sunday night, within 24 hours, just by listing their Venmo on Twitter, they raised $52,000 for lunches and school supplies and toys and things for different pockets of Minneapolis communities. And I think they're going to keep going. That's incredible. The sort of mutual aid movement that's really Mm -hmm. sprung up of just direct fundraising and and, uh, assisting people. Um, Mm -hmm. Denez is not just a pillar of the community there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're also the author of the recently published book of poetry, Homie, and a finalist for the National Book Award. So let's take a listen to this interview with Denez Smith, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in the before times. Hey there, Denez. Welcome back. Hey, how are you? We are so good, and we're so happy that you're here. Um, I think the name Homie is a great name for a book of poems, and then I start reading the book, and I learn... That's not even the name for the book that you really wanted. No. Um, There's two titles. There's one for black people and one for the rest of y'all. So, um, which is most of the city of Portland. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) No, there's um, the actual title of the book um, is my nig. Don't say it back to me. Um, And that (laughs) the reason for that. 
Um, you know, I think if I really wanted to, I could have a book uh, with the N-word in the title, but I didn't want to recreate um, the sort of reckless, loose violence that I think a lot of rappers do with that word mm. by just like letting their fan bases just like holler it across the land. And I have definitely punched somebody at a Kendrick Lamar concert before um, for that same reason. But, um, you know, it was a way to say that, hey, you know, this book has different levels of intimacy, um, that there are different ways in which each of us can walk into this piece of art. And so it's just saying like, you know, welcome to me thinking about friendship in this very particular way. Don't touch anything that, and take your shoes off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that it has a second title page. Yeah. So you see the title page that says homie, mm -hmm. and then you have the explanation for the actual title, and then it's like it, a whole new starting over. Did, did the press give you any, any guff about that, or were no, they excited they, about it? they love me. I yeah. am a... <laughs> they love... I make them money. I, <laughs> they like it. And plus, you know, who doesn't like a reveal, right? It's sort oh, yeah. of like my own... Since I'll never be on RuPaul's Drag Race, why not have a book with two titles, That's, right? Yeah. It's like when, when you walk in in the opening to the workroom, and then you take off one outfit and have another outfit exactly. on Exactly. So this is my wig under my wig under my wig. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Also beautiful. a good name for a book. Yeah. Yeah. Wig under a wig under a wig. Yeah. Um, okay, but then right when we get past the second title to the book, uh, there is a lyric from Lil Wayne. Uh-huh. And I'm, you, you mentioned hip-hop already. I'm curious, as a queer person, how do you reconcile like a love of hip-hop with a lot of the stuff that goes on in hip-hop lyrically with misogyny and homophobia? You know, any form of music that's done by a man at some point is gonna end up sexist or homophobic or classist or all the things. Um, not just hip hop, right? Rock does it too. They're very good at sure. it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so does country. Uh, and so, you know, like I do like most people, I, I cringe and I critique, uh, but I also enjoy, I love hip hop. It's a music that raised me. Um, it's a music that has made sense to uh, my people and my family. Um, and so like anything I love, right? I love my grandma, but I have notes. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, hip, I have notes for hip-hop, right? There are things I would love to be different, but, um, but yeah, it, it is one of the genres that I consider mine. So, yeah. Um, can you uh, read something from Homie? Surely can. Okay. All right. um, so this poem is called uh, My President, not that orange one. Um, so, yeah, when you realize America is a sham, you start pledging allegiance to other things. Here's a poem about that type. All right, my president. Today, I elect Jonathan, 11 and already making roads out of water. Young genius, blog writer, little community activist, curls tight as pinky swears, black as my nation. I trust the world in his tender, blooming hands. I trust him to tell us which rivers are safe to drink and which hold fish like a promise. And I elect Eve Ewing, who I know would misfrizzle the country into one big classroom where grandmas finger paint the national budget and uncles stand around smoking blacks, plotting on stars for our escape. She could walk to the podium at her inauguration and say the future is now. And we would all marvel as the sun and moon started looping the sky like a jiff. It's pronounced jiff as the cars all learned to fly and our skin grew bulletproof. 
And Colin Kaepernick is my president, who kneels on the air, bent toward a branch, throwing apples down to the children and vets. And Rihanna is my president, walking out of global summits with a wine glass still in hand, our taxes returned in gold to dust our faces into coins. And my mama is my president, her grace stunts on amazing brown hands, you're really hype, brown hands, breaking brown bread over the mouths of the hungry until there are none unfed. And my grandma is my president, and her cabinet is her cabinet, cause she, Cause she knows to trust what the, grandma getting a lot of shout outs today. Cause she knows to trust what the pan knows, how the skillet wins the war and the man. I saw high kicking his way down the river. He is my president and the trans girl making songs in her closet, spinning the dark into a booming dress. She too is my president and Shonda Rhimes is my president and Nate Marshall is my president and Trina is my president and the boys outside Walgreens selling candy for a possibly fictional basketball team. They, they are my presidents. And the bus driver who stops after you yell, wait, only twice is my prez. And dude at the pizza spot who will give you a free slice if you are down to wait for him to finish the day's fourth prayer is my president and my auntie. Only a few months clean, but clean. She is my president and my neighbor who holds the door open when my arm are full of laundry is my president and every head nod is my president and every child singing summer with a red sweet tongue is my president and the birds and the cooks and the single moms especially and the weed dealers and the teachers and the meter maids who let you slide and the cab drivers who stop and the nurses swollen feet and the braiders exhausted hands and the bartender and Beyonce and all her kids and the rabbi and the sad girls and the leather daddy who always stops to say good morning and the boy crying on the train and the sudden abuela who rubs his back and the uncle who offers him water and the drag queen who begins to hum oh my presidents my presidents my presidents my presidents show me to our nation my only border is my body I sing your names sing your names your names, my mighty anthem. Denez Smith reading from their book, Homie. That might be, I think that might be the first standing ovation for a poem we've had on, I mean, I know I've never, ever, ever. I don't think I've ever gotten a standing ovation for anything. That's, that's incredible. What is your relationship with a poem like that from when you write it to when it makes it into the book to when you're reading it to people? Like, does it become like a 
song that you know the lyrics to really well? Is it a, a constantly evolving organism for you? Oh, I think every time you read a poem out loud, it is as much um, about all the time you put into it, like the days before, you know, writing it and rewriting it and practicing it, and also about like all the energy in the room, right? So, um, like all of us here tonight, like yeah, you make that poem have. That sounds really corny, um, but I do think that you know I don't perform that poem the same if the audience has no energy in them. Um, then we're both struggling through it. And so, yeah. Um, and so I think that is like the beautiful part about poetry is that it's always this moment um, of intense intimacy, like waiting to happen, right? That poem is like super fun and private for me, but it really only does a certain thing for me and it moves a different way once I get to bring it out into the world and have it with other people. And hopefully like, you know, people who read the book and have their own little private Idaho with the poem too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't know where to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's next door. Yeah. So there's a yeah, good yeah, answer, yeah. a good ending to that statement. Sure. sure. Um, I, I read this poem before I heard this poem and I know you have a great tradition in performance, but this book is so intricate and deep mm -hmm. and formal and, and calling back to all the great forms but then, then out here, it, it sounds like it was just made to be in the air, you know? Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, I think, um, I think the job of the poet or any piece artist is, like, not to waste people's time, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you know, like, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but, like, I had to have been to, like, a literature reading of some sort, sometimes poetry. The fiction writers are really bad. Um, where, like, it feels like they barely wanted to show up, too. And it's just like, well, mm -hmm. why am I here? And so I think when I am sitting down at my little MacBook to write or like at my notebook or whatever piece of receipt paper has offered itself that day, um, it is my job to show up fully to that moment of writing just as it is to when I'm performing to like not waste your time, right? Uh -huh. Why did I lug my whole body from Minneapolis to Portland if I wasn't going to uh -huh. like at least put a little oomph into the poem when I read it? Uh -huh. um, and so I think it's just out of respect um, for, for the tradition and for like the connection between poet and audience, right? I need to show up every time when it's a paper or whether it's a microphone, I am giving like one, I don't want to say 1,000%. I'm giving 98%. That's an acceptable amount. Um, I'm giving 98% uh, just to like really drive it forward and like try to embody the poem, however it's being delivered that day. Uh, there's one poem in the piece that's a narrow column uh -huh. with the same words around it oh, in yeah, like yeah, a frame. Yeah. Can you not read that one out loud? I can. What I do with that one, um, it's, so it's this poem that's based off this video um, that I saw on Twitter one day of all these like bees killing a hornet um, that had just like killed their bee friend and they like swarm his body and vibrate their wings and then he melts. And of course, when I see a gang of animals killing another animal, I think... Racism. Um, <laughs> duh. Uh, of course. What else has always been there? Um, and so, like, yeah, so it's this poem about, like, race and, like, how it's complicated and stuff um, with the words, we are in their love all the way around it. And it's fun because I was like, how do I read this poem yeah. out loud? And I didn't know. And so a couple of readings ago, I decided I make all the white people in the audience just say that phrase over and over again. It starts with white men. And if there's not enough to really get the desired effect, then the white women and the white thems can come on and join um and so so yeah and so it's this fabulous time where me and all the other people of color get to enjoy a poem while the white people do some labor and Lovely. like isn't that <laughs> That's this is live wire radio we're talking to Denez smith their new book is homie uh your previous book don't call us dead it really made a splash and it got a lot of awards and, and it got a lot of uh, discussion around it then you're working on your next book. Does that make it easier or more difficult 
to put out your second book when the first book went really well? Uh, harder for me. Um, I'm a Leo, um, if that means anything to you. And no Leo should be told that they did a good job. Because uh, <laughs> we will believe it. Um, but also, um, it, makes a, it makes it incredibly hard to do anything else. And so I had like a long period of writer's block while writing Homie where I couldn't do anything because Don't Call Us Dead had um, done the thing that I guess I had hoped a book would do at some point in my career. And it was happening when I was 27, 28. Um, and so, yeah, I panicked and I couldn't write a poem without it needing to achieve some other task that isn't what a poem should care about. I was trying to make it back onto these awards lists. I was trying to sell these books again. And a poem doesn't need to be concerned with anything besides, like, capturing one tiny bit of what it meant to be human. And I was letting all these egotistical things get, into the, get in the way of just letting a poem think or be or move me from one place to another. And so it took a couple of months to really remind myself that I wasn't writing poems for the National Book Award Committee, that I was doing it because it saved my life. It helps me make sense of the world because poems are real urgent things and not just like, yeah, some stepping stone for some meager career. And I think that is what I had to remind myself that I didn't care about any of this other stuff when I started writing poems. They moved me. And so if I can inspire that in folks, if I could get back to this place of like, what is the, I don't know, I want, I want to say like the, the, the bigger than me goal mm -hmm. for this book of poetry, right? Like what is going to live beyond myself? It is this little artifact of love mm -hmm. that I made, I hope. And so I had to, yeah, I had to think about that. Yeah. Who, who am I? But I think that's going to die. Let the poems be something better. Well, why do you think, I mean, it's not like uh, writers of, of other prose are necessarily raking it in. I mean, writing overall is, I think, my sense is it's something people do because they love it. Mm -hmm. But why don't we value poetry more when it's something that clearly moves people? You got a reaction from this crowd that's probably unlike anything I can remember in years. Well, I think it, one, I do think it's changing, right? Okay. I think if you like look at the numbers, um, then more people are reading poetry than they have in the last couple of decades. So people are returning to poetry again. Thank you, Ruby Cower. Go girl. Um, love her, actually, um, for that reason. Um, but um, I think it's because of how we've remembered poetry as a society, right? Like, I don't know about y'all, but like, I didn't realize that poets were still living until like, Seriously, until like 10th grade and not in English class because it was always like Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson, Lexington Hughes if it was February, and, and that was it. And so it wasn't until my theater teacher actually like brought in some like living, breathing poets. So I was like, oh crap, people still write that stuff? Um, and so I think it's, I think because people have this fraught, dead relationship with poetry where they think it's a thing of the past, that it's something we look back upon to think about where we are now. But there are poets writing about today. There are poets that are using the languages that we exist in today. And that's so powerful. And I think people, there's every day there's somebody having an aha moment that, oh, wow, poetry is still here and it's still vibrant and it still speaks to me. Um, I think there are a lot of teachers. Um, shout out to everybody under the hashtag Teach Living Poets uh, um, on Twitter. Uh, so I think there is like a slow movement of folks trying to really uh, make poetry not only alive again in our hearts, but like to be like, hey, there's actually a lot of really brilliant contemporary poets uh, writing right now. Um, there's a huge treasure trove and I'm excited for everybody else to figure out um, that, that there is this great abundance in poetry right now. Uh, Danez Smith, everyone. This is Livewire from PRX. <laughs> that
That was Denez Smith. Their recent book of poetry is Homie. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, joined as always by Elena Passarello. Um, Elena, remember back in February, the before times, when we could actually get together in a room together and have sort a crowd of. of people? <laughs> yeah, it feels like the distant past. Well, it really happened. And I'm sure you remember the, when we had Amethyst Kia on the show. Oh, yeah. Unforgettable. Yeah. Yeah. It was this really fun, interesting chat. And then uh, she played this song, Black Myself, which she was nominated for a Grammy for. And that song itself has a very interesting backstory, which to me feels very related to everything that's been going on this week. So I thought we would play that now. Uh, this is our chat recorded back in February with Amethyst Kia on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Check it out. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. It's my first time in Portland, so um, yeah. How does um, how does Portland compare to Johnson City, Tennessee, so far? It's very different. Yeah, think? It's very different. There's a lot more amazing restaurants to eat at. Yeah, you're in the right place. I'll tell you for food, at least during your trip to Portland. What was your uh, kind of musical life growing up in Tennessee? What kind of music was playing? What were you interested in? So I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I lived there for the first 19 years of my life. And uh, both my mom and my dad uh, loved listening to music. And my dad uh, was an an audiophile. So he had a huge collection of music. So um, I just grew up listening to everything from uh, Carlos Santana, Dolly Parton, um, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Um, Yeah, just pretty much everything. So When did you actually start writing music and what were you writing about? Uh, so I started playing guitar. My parents bought me a guitar when I was 13 years old. Um, and then that's when I really started to try to uh, write songs. And I was really into alternative music when I was in my teens. So a lot of the songs I tried to write were um, sad and depressing and <laughs> about loss and struggle. So, yeah, I don't know. That was, that was my thing. <laughs> was there a particular alternative band that you loved that you were like, maybe inadvertently writing kind of versions of that kind of music just because it was what you were consuming? Uh, I would say the two that always come to mind immediately are uh, Radiohead as far as rock bands, and then uh, Tori Amos was a huge inspiration. She's actually the reason, I would say that she was the reason that that I decided I'm going to try and write songs. Not necessarily try to have a career in it, because at the time, I mean, I was you know, 15, 16, I didn't know anything about that. I just knew, wow, I love the way that she writes and I want to be as awesome as that, whatever that might mean. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you're doing a good job so far. You're also part of this uh, super group called Our Native Daughters with uh, Rhiannon Giddens from Carolina Chocolate Drops and a number of other musicians. Yeah. Uh, what's it like collaborating with these other musicians as opposed to just doing your kind of solo stuff? Well, I mean, uh, collaborating with them, it was the first time I'd ever really co-written and done a collaborative project like this. So for me, it was an incredible um, learning lesson for me in a lot of ways. And it also opened me up to um, my songwriting approach. When I got stuck, I, you know, throw it out to the, to the group. And, you know, I co-wrote about two or three songs. And the other thing, too, was that being part of a project that was addressing um, the tragedy and 
triumph of the transatlantic slave trade and of all the subsequent like oppression that happened as a result of that, which that's the tragedy, but then also celebrating the triumph of all the shoulders that we're standing on and living our ancestors' wildest dreams by being able to travel the world and play music. And um, what's really been the most impactful, what's really meant the most to us is that we made this record and people aren't looking, listening to this and thinking, oh, this is just a story about black people. This is a story. This is an American story. It's about Americans, yeah. really. So. This is Livewire coming to you from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank with virtually, of course, Elena Passarello, who's in Corvallis, Oregon. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere because we've got more with Amethyst Kia coming up. And we're going to even hear her Grammy-nominated song, Black Myself. This is Livewire Radio. Stay with us. Special thanks this episode to Bruce Literal of Scapoose, Oregon, and Brian Fink of Portland, Oregon. Bruce and Brian are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support the show with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support because it is genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing going. So thank you so much this week to Bruce and Brian for their support. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, broadcasting from quarantine. Elena Passarello is at her house down in Corvallis. Uh, this is a historic week for our nation, and we wanted to present some conversations that were really impactful for us on stage, Elena, when we recorded them, and, and that we think the listeners will really um, benefit from. Uh, so let's get back to our conversation with musician Amethyst Kia. So you're going to play the song Black Myself, which was nominated for a Grammy. What was that like? Well, I mean, to be honest, I was on tour when I found out about it. I woke up at 930 in the morning in my hotel room in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had... Where all good things happen. Right, exactly. So there were like... I don't know, there was like 50 notifications on my phone. And at first I thought, oh my God, what happened? Like, that's never, I've never had that many notifications before. And it was just people congratulating me for the nomination. And so um, uh, my dad is Carl Phillips. He uh, tours, he tours with me on most of my shows. He drives and sells merch and uh, helps me uh, keep it together, if you will. And um, yeah, and and I was like, hey, Dad, I uh, got nominated for a Grammy. And he's like, he just, we both kind of just sat there and we were like, wow, because we'd been on this journey together for 10 years of playing shows and, you know, a lot of bumps along the way because it's, it's difficult to make a living as a musician. So to kind of sit there for a minute and kind of think about that. But then also it was almost 10 a.m. at this point and it was time to check out of the hotel. So <laughs> we had to. We had to get out and go down the road to the next show, you know? So it's, so there was two months of like not really being able to like process it because I, it was business as usual. I had to keep, you know, I had to, you know, keep it going. Cause you know, the, the thing about being nominated for a Grammy is that, um, if anything, it's not, it's not a sign that 
I've made it and that now I can sit back and relax. If anything, this is a sign that there's more to come and there's more that I still need to do, you know, so. Yeah. I don't know, Amethyst, if you were able to hear our conversation with Denez, but they were talking a little bit about trying to not write in the direction of acclaim or awards or things like that. And like, you've got a Grammy nomination now. When you're writing a song, are you thinking about intent and thinking about just creating the song versus like, what's the feedback on this song going to be? And I mean, like, not from the microphones, but from the audience. Oh, no. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my always, my approach has always been like writing for the sake of the song. I mean, if I were thinking about wanting to get nominated for a Grammy, I wouldn't have written Black myself. <laughs> like... Because, I mean, that's the most confrontational direct song I've ever written. So that was the last thing. I mean, that was nowhere in my mind. And I think, you know, music for me started out as a catharsis. So the first 10 years I played music, I played for myself in my room. I didn't perform in front of people. So it comes from a very personal place. And I can't think of writing for any other reason than for my own catharsis and then also for other people to hear and that we can maybe share in a moment of not being alone. I think that's the most important thing for me when it comes to creating art. So, yeah. We are, we're so glad to have you here. Um, And let's hear a song. All right. Well, I figured I would uh, figured I would sing uh, "Black Myself" if that's all right with you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Stand proud and free 
Cause I'm black myself I go anywhere that I wanna go Cause I'm black myself And I'm surrounded by many loving arms Cause I'm black myself And I stand my ground and smile in your face Cause I'm black myself I wash away the blood and tears I've been That was Amethyst Kia from back in February at the Alberta Rose Theater. Boy, that was an electric show, Elena. Do you remember there were two standing ovations that episode? It was amazing. People didn't want to leave when it was over. Everyone was just sort of like standing around, hanging out after Denez and Amethyst. That just The energy was insane. Yeah, it was a really cool time. And I'm really glad that this week we were able to play this on the radio because I feel like the contribution maybe we can make, Elena, you and I and the Livewire staff, is to try to use this little hour of radio real estate we have to amplify some voices and really present some perspectives that I think are really useful for everybody to hear. So um, I'm really glad we got to do that this week. That is going to do it for our show. A huge thanks to our guests, Ijeoma Aluo, Denez Smith, and, of course, Amethyst Kia. Livewire is brought to you in part by Foley, Alaska Airlines, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer, and Molly Pettit, our technical director, also mixes the show. As always, a big thanks to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Roger and Jennifer Brown of Scapoose, Oregon, and Ron Marsh of Tigard, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. We're wishing you peace, safety, and love. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, 
I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>